0: just finished 1st John, so we're going to do 2nd and 3rd John just to have a complete set. There, quite frankly, isn't a lot new in these two. To sort of recap what we said during 1st John, these letters don't have a salutation and they don't have a signature. 2nd John does have a salutation, the elder to the elect lady and her children, but we have no idea who this elect lady is, where she lives anything. The letters are traditionally attributed to John, the apostle. I have no reason to doubt that. I'm not casting any aspersions on that idea other than to say that they aren't signed or they don't lead off with I, Paul, or I, John, like Paul does in some of his letters. He does talk about topics that are common to the gospel of John. So I'm not sitting here being a textual critic and wondering who really wrote them. I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea that John wrote them, I'm simply mentioning it doesn't say so. You remember in 1 John, he was writing against people who were coming around teaching heresy, and the heresy apparently particularly had to do with who the person of Yeshua is. And we talked about that during 1 John, and I don't intend to repeat that. What we're talking about here is also false teaching, and this is in the context of hospitality. So apparently what's happening is you've got people coming through town asking for hospitality and then casting doubts on who Yeshua is. That seems to be the subject of 2 John here. So let's start. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Yeshua Messiah, the Father's Son, in truth and love. What word did you notice over and over and over again in that salutation? Truth. This is a big subject in this letter and the next letter. It was a big subject in 1 John. And we talked about what truth would have meant in biblical times and the way we understand truth in our society today is very different. Human intellect has changed over the last 3,000 years. The way humanity looked at things in the time of the Egyptians and in biblical times in the time of the Mesopotamians there were sort of two phases of thought. One is what we would call reason And the other one they would have called intellect, which we would regard as intuition, contemplation, connection with the spiritual world, those kinds of things. And those two modes of thought, if you will, gradually began to separate. It started with the Greeks and accelerated through the Roman civilization And when you start getting into the so-called enlightenment and so forth, it just gallops to the point where what they would have called intellect, which is intuition and contemplation and spiritual connection, became completely overshadowed by reason. And the reason for that, of course, is that reason has been really successful in producing stuff. It's been exceptionally successful in producing goods and services. Even the poorest of us in the United States have got luxuries that the Egyptian pharaohs could not have imagined. You can go into your kitchen and turn the tap and you can get hot or cold water. You can go into the bathroom and your waste suddenly disappears from your house. All of those things would have been the province of squads of servants a thousand years ago. To make all that happen for somebody, would have required a crew of servants to go out and draw water and haul waste off and do all of those kinds of things. We don't need that anymore because that's all provided as part of our civilization. But the cost of that has been we have lost track or lost the connection to intuition, contemplation, and the spiritual side. So you now have, if you will, the whole Western world pretty much is anti-God. They regard God as being a proposition which is not demonstrated, to say it in legal terms. In other words, you all are free to believe in this God if you want to, but I don't know whether it's still popular intellectually, but when I was a younger man, one of the popular things in magazines and so forth was trying to prove whether God exists or not. That used to be a big deal. Can we prove that God exists or can we prove that he doesn't exist? And of course you had the, the normal snarling back and forth from people on either side. That question would never have arisen in biblical times or in ancient Egyptian times or in Mesopotamian times. Of course there are gods, it's completely obvious. All this is to say what we understand by the concept of truth is it something that can be observed... I can look in a microscope and I can see little bugs swimming around in the water. I can observe that. Furthermore, I have things that I can observe about the world and I can state those as truths or axioms or so forth. And then from there, I can talk about those and reason about those. And if my reasoning chain is correct, then the result that I come up with is by definition true. That's not what it would have meant to the writer or the reader of the letter of John. That's not how they would have thought. What they would have thought of as truth is only gleaned by observation over a long period of time. And using Mike as my guinea pig here, I can say Mike is a true man. He's male, he's tall, he's strong. I've come to learn that Mike is reliable. I've come to learn that I can depend upon his word. I've come to learn that he's honest. Those are things that I have only learned knowing Mike for a period of time observation. That's not the sense that we take it today. In fact, the idea of being a true man is really wobbly right now, because your gender flips around from time to time, depending on how you feel about it when you wake up in the morning. And by the way, this becoming untethered from what people in biblical times would have regarded as reality is a function of the ascendance of reason over intellect. Because as we get farther and farther from connection to the supernatural and to God and from intuition and so forth, what happens is that part of our life, which is fundamental to who we are, has been cast adrift. And we've lost the strength of our connection to things that in biblical times people would have regarded as true without even thinking about it. So when John here is talking about not only I, but also all who know the truth, well, what he's talking about is he's talking about the Messiah, and the Messiah is the Son of God, and the Messiah came as a man. These are all things that he knows as truth, and it's a body of knowledge, both rational and intellectual, quote-unquote, that he is referring to. So as he's writing this, he's emphasizing The things that I am saying to you are true. I personally have observed them. Remember, he talked about that in 1 John. I personally have observed this. I watched him having been raised from the dead. I watched him die. I watched him walk among us. I watched the miracles that he did. I was there when the voice of God came out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him." So what he's saying is all of this, stuff that I have been telling you is true. And I know it's true because I have personally observed it over a period of three and a half years while he walked the earth. So what I'm telling you is true. So now we're all the way down to verse four. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And we talked about this same subject back in 1 John, where he says, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old commandment, but it's been made new by the resurrection of Yeshua. There's nothing new in what I'm saying here. Same Torah that you know, but that Torah that you know has now become new by the sacrifice resurrection of Messiah. That has cast a whole new light on this stuff that you have studied in the Torah. Verse 6, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And he's saying that I am not changing the Torah. It's the same Torah that you have heard from the beginning, but it has been made new. And the thing that's made it new is the salvation that we now have by the Messiah's sacrifice. That's not written here, but that's what he means. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Yeshua Messiah in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And again, we talked about this during 1 John. All of Christianity is used to thinking of the Antichrist, who is the one who will come at the end. John is using this in the sense of someone who denies that Yeshua is the Messiah, that Yeshua came in the flesh, that Yeshua was a man, that Yeshua was the Son of God. Somebody who's denying that is Antichrist. Small a, not capital A. So he's talking about deceivers who have gone out into the world. Verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. And this sort of echoes Paul, where Paul says, I've run the race. Just as I'm approaching the finish line, I'm not going to quit now. I'm going to finish the race so that I get the reward. And John is saying much the same thing here. You guys believed when I was there. You believed when I was talking to you. Now don't get talked off your game and lose your reward. Verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. What I infer, this is entirely speculation and entirely inference, based of course on our understanding of what's going on in Galatians. And based on our understanding of what was going on at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, where you had the circumcision party who were of the opinion that Gentiles, in order to be saved, had to be circumcised. And Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, is countering that. Because what happened was, even though the Council of Jerusalem said, no, they don't have to be circumcised to be saved, the members of the circumcision party when they would go out would still preach circumcision and they were confusing the gentiles and the reason that they were confusing the gentiles is because they were coming from the home office and one of the things that you got to remember is these are new converts and you can see the phenomena in the messianic church by the way you get people that come into messianic belief and they've come out of christianity And they are just all excited and fired up and want to know as much as they can. And in our case, they go on the Internet. In Paul's case, what happened is people would come, having come from Jerusalem, and swing by and say, hey, I'm from Jerusalem. Let me tell you about this new religion. Just like we have people, let's go to find a teacher on the Internet that's going to talk about this, that, or the other thing. And what you wind up with, especially new believers, They don't know what is true and what is bogus. They they just don't have enough experience yet. So when somebody that comes through town that appears authoritative, in the case of Galatians, we're members of the church in Jerusalem. Now let me tell you what's going on here. You've got to get circumcised. And what's happening here is you have people coming, I am assuming from Jerusalem also, who are coming through there and saying, yeah, 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 I know what it says, but Whatever the heresy was, remember we talked about the two heresies. One is that he wasn't actually a man. He was an angelic being that walked among us in man form. And the other heresy is that he was just a man who was indwelt by the spirit which left at the crucifixion, as opposed to being fully human and fully divine. So somebody is coming through and saying, yeah, I'm from the home office, and let me tell you what's really going on here. And that's confusing people. And what John is saying is, if these people come through your town, we used to call it the Baptist Anal Exam. Martin Street was our church in Longmont, where we started. When that church got sold out from under us, we were looking for another place. And we talked to several churches. And every one of them gave us what I call the Baptist Anal Exam. Baptist proctologists checking you out. They would grill us on following the law, eating kosher, Who do you believe this Jesus is? And we think he's done away with the law. What are you guys doing? This very suspicious questioning that we would get before we actually came here. A couple of years earlier, we were considering moving. We knew about the place because our two boys during their teenage rebellion became Baptist and they came to the youth group here. So we knew the place and we came by. And boy, we just got grilled about our theology and what we believe and all that kind of stuff. And I think turned us down the first time. And then they had a church split. And they really needed somebody to help them keep the building up and pay rent and all that kind of stuff. So they, they let us in the second time. And I think they had a change in leadership, too. So then we got in. But the point I'm making is, in a church, you got all sorts of divergent opinions floating around. Some of them are important and some of them are not. For example, how do you keep Shabbat? I mean, do you light two candles and do you make braided challah bread and do you wash your hands and all that kind of stuff? Those are all the traditions of men. And everybody in this congregation has different ways of celebrating Shabbat. No harm, no foul. No big deal. The rapture, for example. I don't happen to be a rapture guy. Some of you may be. That's okay. We can sit and talk about it over lunch and argue about it and all that kind of stuff, but it's not worth getting grumpy about. There are things, however, that are worth getting grumpy about. And what John is saying here is these guys who are coming by and casting doubt on who the Messiah is are worth getting grumpy about. Don't greet them. Don't invite them into your house. Don't sit and talk with them over supper. Just move them right along. And so what John is saying here is some itinerant teacher comes through, give him the old Baptist exam, and find out what he thinks about the person of the Messiah before you decide to let him in your house. That's what John is saying. There are some things that are worth getting grumpy about, and there are some things that are not worth getting grumpy about. And John is saying this is one that you should get grumpy about. Don't even entertain these people. Just move them right along. Verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not... Use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that your joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. I have no idea who the elect sister is. Anyway, that is is Second John. So, Third John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What's the dominant word that you hear again there? And that goes back to the Gospel of John. It's obviously one of the things that he emphasizes. And we did the whole riff on truth earlier, and I shan't repeat it. Verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing... "...you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church." So what we're talking about is traveling teachers, if you will, evangelists perhaps, not apostles necessarily, but evangelists. And remember in Second John, what was being warned against was these traveling evangelists who were sowing doubt as to the person of Messiah. Here he's talking about evangelists whom he approves of and he's commending Gaius for greeting them, taking care of them, and they are reporting back to the home office that Gaius is solid. Second half of verse 6, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, which is to say give them hospitality. Remember in the previous letter it was saying don't give them any hospitality. These guys are okay so you do want to give them hospitality. Verse 7, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. All right, Gentiles. What I don't know here is what he means. In the letter to the Romans, Paul wrote, you got four groups of people in the Roman church. Orthodox Jews do not believe in Yeshua, just plain old garden variety Jews. You've got Messianic Jews like Paul. Paul's a Messianic Jew. You have got proselytes who are Gentiles who are undergoing the process of conversion to Judaism. And they are under the tutelage of the synagogue. And At some point they will be circumcised and they will be accepted into Judaism. That's their goal. We want to be Jews. And then finally, you have got Gentiles who have had the Holy Spirit land upon them in the same way that Cornelius did, for example, in the book of Acts. So these are Gentiles who have come in because that's where the books are. So they've had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They are believers and they want to now study. So you got these four groups within the synagogue and there's tension among them. What I don't know is what John means by Gentiles. Does he mean wild Gentiles who have never heard the word of God and are not born again and so forth? Does he mean Gentiles in the Roman sense, which is to say they have the spirit of God, they are believers in Yeshua, but they were not born Jews? So I don't know in what sense he means Gentiles here. If he's writing to a Hebrew synagogue then Gentiles means non-Jews. I'm not sure what we're talking about here. Accepting nothing from the Gentiles could be, I have only traveled in believing communities, and that's where I'm getting my support. It could mean I'm writing to a synagogue, in which case we're talking about Jews and Gentiles. Just don't know. Verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. This is very Jewish One of the things in a Jewish community, you have yeshiva students, rabbis, so forth, that don't have a regular job, and they are supported by the merchant class of people within the synagogue. And within Judaism, the merchant class is regarded as partaking in the merit of the ones who are studying Torah, because they're the ones that make it possible. So they get vicarious credit, if you will, for being Torah scholars, even though they're businessmen. And I'm not knocking that in any way. I'm not mocking it or anything. I'm just just saying that's the way many Jewish communities are organized. And here he's saying the same thing. We ought to support people like these, the people who are coming around teaching about Yeshua, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Our support for them gets us credit in the same way that those who are going out and teaching get credit. Verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So he has written something to the church of which Gaius is a member. And this guy, Diotrephes, doesn't regard John as authoritative and has been blocking his communication with the church. So Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So this guy is apparently a local heavy hitter, got a lot of influence, doesn't like John, And furthermore, doesn't like the people who John approves of, and so is preventing people in the community from welcoming those folks. And if anybody does welcome those folks, he's agitating to get them thrown out of the church. Verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. And I am assuming that a good testimony from the truth itself is talking about the Holy Spirit. And John, of course, is adding his endorsement of Demetrius and asserting that his testimony is true. Verse 13, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face-to-face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. So dealing, obviously, with a problem. And the problem is the reception of missionaries or evangelists that John approves of. And he is praising those who treat them well. And he is taking a stripe out of Diotrephes who does not. But it's very much a pastoral letter in that he's dealing with a problem in the church.